Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all. My name is Stephen Jones. I'm one of the pastors here, work with our college students. One of the great things about being a part of a network is on Saturdays, it makes you super conflicted. So I wasn't conflicted at all during the Michigan-Iowa game. Let's go Ann Arbor. Andrew and Laura Hager, you're up there. We're cheering loud for you. Sorry, Hawkeyes, but I was so happy every moment. But then later on during the day, you get texts from salt directors at the University of Kansas in Lawrence saying, hey, you know the guy that sacked Hunter Deckers twice? Uh, yeah, he's led... 10 of his friends to join his Bible study. He's a salt company leader. He's leading a connection group and he's like leading 10 of these guys to come to his Bible study every single week. And you're like, well, good for him. (laughs) Maybe, uh, now you're rock chalk. Come on. Wow. Oh, Megan. Oh yeah, of course you're rock chalk. Wow. Thankfully though, there's still universities out there like Indiana State that don't have a salt company, and just you and I, students, we were able to cheer without any confliction yesterday when we beat Indiana State. Let's go! Thank you, you and I, students. Hey, we're going to get there. Go Cats. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Casey. But hey, for uh, every Nineveh out there, there's a Jonah, I suppose, Megan. So Lawrence, you've got your Jonah. Uh-huh. But it's great. It's great to be a, net, a part of a network. It's so exciting to see all that God is doing across our nation in the lives of students, in the lives of communities uh, all around us. So, 1002 day, it is a great day, October 2nd. If you haven't set your alarm for 1002, please join us. It's an amazing thing just at 1002 every single day to pause, to remember that there is more going on in this world than just what's right in front of me, that there is actually a harvest that's plentiful that the Lord wants labors to be raised up and go to. So set that alarm. National 1002 Day is today. Well, if you've got a Bible, Daniel 4 is where we are going to be at this morning as we continue on in our Daniel series. This is actually the last story that we're going to see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to see is he's going to say a line that maybe you've heard before, and he won't actually explicitly say it, but this is the sort of story where you look back and you say, man, this was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Right? Do you ever find yourself saying that you face something hard, you face a trial, something doesn't go the way you thought it was going to go, but then in hindsight, you're able to say, man, little did I know that was going to be the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Well, if you're in Daniel 4, here's how Nebuchadnezzar actually starts this. He's actually penning a letter to the entire world. And here's what he says in the first three verses. King Nebuchadnezzar. To those of every people, nation, language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar to who? To all the people, the nations, the languages. And in this letter, he's going to share about how one of the worst experiences of his life, he actually can now say these words about. That it actually showed him God's goodness, his greatness, as he experienced the miracles and wonders of God that he did for him. What he experienced was terrible, but Nebuchadnezzar is writing this to tell us it was worth it. 
So what happened? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar that would so radically change him from the man that we've been seeing him as to this man who is now praising God and about to tell us this story? Well, Nebuchadnezzar went through, you could say, spiritual chemotherapy. And the cancer was the cancer of pride. Chemotherapy, it's terrible, but Nebuchadnezzar went through this terrible experience and through it, it removed spiritual pride from his life. And here in this letter, he's going to tell us it was worth it to have pride removed. C.S. Lewis claimed that pride is the worst sin in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, pride is what led Satan to rebel against God. It's what what led Adam and Eve to think they could be as wise as God and take the fruit. And pride was destroying Nebuchadnezzar's life. Yet his story is a story of hope and redemption. And he's going to look back and say, "This little did I know this was the best thing that could have happened to me. So if we're going to experience freedom from our pride, then we are going to first have to see what Nebuchadnezzar went through and what brought this freedom. So here's what we're going to see in this letter that he's writing. First, we're going to see the deceptiveness of pride. Then we'll see the destructiveness of pride. And then lastly, we'll see the restoration that Nebuchadnezzar experienced from pride. Now, this is kind of a part one, part two uh, series. So we got this little mini series. Chapter four is the hope for those who are proud. But next week when Jake comes, it's going to be chapter five. And that's really going to be the judgment for those who are proud. So this morning, we are going to see the hope for those of us who experience pride in our life. So starting off, here's how he begins in verse four. And we're going to see the deceptiveness of pride says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream and it frightened me. While I was in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make my dreams interpretation known to me. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. It's so interesting. Nebuchadnezzar is literally the most powerful man in the world. Babylon had conquered and was ruling everything they knew that existed. And where's Nebuchadnezzar in all of this? He's at ease. He's flourishing. He's content. He's at peace in his palace. There was no threat he was worried about. There was nothing that he lacked. He was literally the king of the world. And yet he was having nightmares. We saw this earlier. He was troubled. And here's the reality. His empire was incredible. The empire had, was founded by his father in around 625 BC. He took it over. He had even extended its power. He was able to take over Jerusalem in 597 BC. And at this point, they are literally ruling every known part of the world and universe to them. There is nowhere left to rule that they're aware of. This would have been at the, this moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life would have been the height of Babylon's rule and flourishing. So what did he do when he began to flourish? Garden. Isn't gardening like the quintessential, just like expression of flourishing in a person's life? Like what do you do when you find out someone, like one of your friends is gardening? You're like, wow, hashtag life goals, Right? It's like, man, if you have time to garden, if you can, like, what are you doing? Like, that's the epitome of rest and flourishing. It's like, you can garden? Wow. 
Natalie and I just constantly dream about gardening because it just sounds so relaxing. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. The hanging gardens of Babylon. They had conquered everything they could possibly conquer. So he began to garden. And it wasn't just like your grandmother's garden. These were incredible, incredible hanging gardens. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They would like basically use this irrigation system to make these hanging gardens that were on terraces. It was just this incredible park of a city, just beautiful and immaculate, incredible landscaping. So Nebuchadnezzar was at ease. He was flourishing in his palace. And yet in the landscape of hanging gardens of Babylon, he had nightmares. He couldn't sleep. So once again, he calls for his magicians, his diviners, his Chaldeans, come interpret for me what my dream means. They can't. So again, we've seen this story before. He calls Daniel, and here's what Daniel interprets the dream as in verse 8. Finally, Daniel named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told him the dream, Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high ruler over that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He tells it to Daniel, and Daniel now gives the interpretation. Here's verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king says, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, 
whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals lived, and in its branches the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, May my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. So that's the dream. That's the interpretation. That's the warning that Nebuchadnezzar receives. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. You've become great and powerful, but what has he failed to do? acknowledge the, that the Most High is ruler, that he's the ruler over human kingdoms, and that he gives them to anyone he wants. That phrase is said twice. It was said in verse 17 and then later in the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's problem isn't necessarily that he was great, that he was powerful, that he had all of this. It was that he had failed to acknowledge who that came from. Now, notice a few things from this dream. What was the first thing that was mentioned? In verse 10, where's the tree at? There was a tree in the middle of the earth. This tree's in the middle of the earth. When we're plagued with pride, don't we see ourselves as the center of our world? Middle of the earth. The world revolves around me. Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as the center of the world. He believed the world revolved around him and failed to acknowledge that God had given him everything he had and made him everything he was. So what was the decree? God was going to strip him of all of it. God had given it to him all, and now he was going to take it all away to show him who it came from. And he was going to force Nebuchadnezzar to live as an animal for seven periods of time. What is that? Well, some people think it's seven months. Some people think it's seven seasons, so almost two years. Some people would say, no, in Hebrew, the number seven, it represents completeness. So he was going to be out there until whatever work needed to happen was complete. Either way, Nebuchadnezzar was going to be driven away because he failed to acknowledge that the Most High God is ruler over all, and everything we have comes from him. Now, before we get into that more, I just want to pause and point out how amazing Daniel is. Like, how awesome is it that Daniel, for decades, had been around the pride of this man, and yet, what marks him when he confronts Nebuchadnezzar? Compassion, conviction, gentleness. 
patience. He's experienced the arrogance, the haughtiness, the suffocating pride of Nebuchadnezzar for decades, and yet he still has hope for him. He's patient, he's compassionate towards him, and at the same time, he still speaks boldly into his life. It's an amazing example of how to confront and how to not lose hope on someone. So, Nebuchadnezzar hears this warning. What happens next? Verse 28. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar fails to hear Daniel's warning, and sure enough, the dream is fulfilled. And what Nebuchadnezzar declared in that moment when he was out in the palace, that really is what is at the heart of all pride, right? What did he say? Fast forward 12 months later, he walks out and he says two things. Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence by what? By my vast power. And second, for my majestic glory. By my power and for my glory. Those two things are at the heart of pride. He looks at one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and he looks at his vast empire and he says, I did it and it's for me. I did it and I deserve it. I did it and I deserve the credit. I deserve the privileges of what I have labored to do. That is the heart of pride. This week and next week, the definition Jake and I will use of pride is this. Pride is a failure to acknowledge that everything I have and everything I am is from God. His pride blinded him from this reality. It was deceptive. And our pride blinds us from this reality as well. One of the things I've been wondering as I've been studying this is, man, how do you hear such a horrible warning? You're going to be turned into an animal and fail to respond. It's got to be because pride is so deceptive in our lives. I think one of the greatest dangers for us is that we would see this story and be like, yep, pride is bad. Shouldn't be proud. He was proud. Glad I'm not proud. And that actually pride has deceptively blinded us to our failure to acknowledge that everything I have and everything I am is from God. How many sermons have you heard on pride? How many times have you taught your kids about pride? And yet, how often is pride present in your life? Pride is so deceptive. 
there's a constant pull in our hearts to see that everything in our life was by my power and for my glory. I did it and I deserve it. It takes so many shapes. Think about this. How often are you annoyed at another person because they talked too much in your conversation? What is that? That's pride. They got to be the tree in the middle of the earth, not me. Why else would you be annoyed? At work, why do you feel threatened by the up and coming new coworker? Why would you feel threatened by that? It's only if you think you got where you got by your vast power. The only reason why you would be threatened by an up and coming coworker is if you think that you did it so you deserve the position. I've put in the years. I've made the sacrifices. I've been faithful when the boss wasn't looking. And now this young gun thinks that they're going to take my spot that I've earned, that I deserve. That's the only reason why you would be threatened by that, is if you think I did it, I deserve it. Everything you have and everything you are, though, is from God. Here's another form that pride takes. C.S. Lewis says this is one of the most deceptive aspects of pride. It's that how often do we use pride to actually fight sin in our lives? What is the ammo that you're carrying into fighting pornography or purity in your life? Is it because you're like, man, God is so glorious and beautiful and gracious. I just want to be a person marked by purity in my life. Or is it, man, I, that sin's below me. How could I stoop down to that level? I wasn't raised like that. I know better. C.S. Lewis says that Satan is more than happy to allow you to trade the, the sin of lust for the sin of pride. Pride works in both those who have and those who don't. Those who have say, I deserve it. Those who don't have say, I didn't do it, so I don't deserve it. Both, though, are centering the world on themselves. Both are failing to see that everything that we have and are is from God. Now, here's a potential objection that rises in our hearts. But I did work hard. I did get up early. I was disciplined. I did do the right thing. Don't I deserve it a little? Didn't I earn it a little? Don't I need, like, deserve a little bit of the credit? Why is it so bad? What is so bad about acknowledging at least some of what we are and what we have is a result of our hard work? Well, Tim Keller in his sermon on Daniel 4 gives a helpful illustration at this point. He says, imagine this, you write a song and then the next week I take the song that you wrote and I publish it under my name and I begin telling everybody, I wrote this song and I get concert tours, I get all of it, I get all the credit for the song that you wrote. What would you think? You'd be furious, right? And if anyone else found out that what I did to your song, how I stole it from you, they would be furious. Why? That's plagiarism. Taking credit for what someone else has done. What is pride? Pride is cosmic plagiarism. 
It's taking credit for what God has done in our lives. You did not control where you were born. You did not control the parents that you had, the upbringing that you were given. You didn't control the talents that you just naturally received, the abilities that you naturally have. You did very little to control the social network that helped you advance in your career. So little of where you are is a result of, who you, who, of what you've done. Not only that, here's what Acts 17.25 says. God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Not only did you not control any of those other things, you're not even controlling your ability to sustain your own life through breathing. You are fully dependent on God for everything. Here's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? Everything you have and everything you are is from God. What then is the opposite of pride? It's humility. Humbly acknowledging it's all from God. And it's all for God. We only are and have what we have because he graciously gave it to us. Now, sometimes we confuse humility with false humility. Humility acknowledges he did it for his own glory, so now I will humbly receive this gift with gratitude, even though I don't deserve it. False humility, though, it's still pride. It says he did it also, I don't deserve it, so I won't take it. That's still pride. Because at the end of the day, it's focused on what you do or don't do. And you're saying, I didn't do it, so I don't deserve it, so I won't take it. But real humility is, I didn't do it, yet he has graciously given it to me, so I will receive it with thanksgiving. Here's where we are then. Pride had consumed Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He was deceived by it, and so he experienced the destructiveness of it. Look at verses 31 and 33 again. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar went insane. His mind was changed where he literally thought he was an animal. God disfigured his bodily features to give him animalistic features. Pride had destroyed him. Daniel Aiken says, Nebuchadnezzar viewed himself as superhuman, so God made him subhuman. God was using this horrible experience to get through to Nebuchadnezzar, to show him what his pride was doing. God literally turned Nebuchadnezzar into an animal to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar what his pride had already turned him into, an animal. Pride turns us into a beast. It turns us into an animal. 
Tim Keller's sermon is helpful again here. He gives a couple examples of how pride makes us animalistic. First, think about joy. Animals can't experience joy. Now, I've made it known in the past that I am not an animal person, so I'm going to tread lightly through this section. Uh, Can your dog be happy? Yes, I believe he can be happy. Can he be satisfied? Yes, he can be satisfied. But can your dog experience real and genuine joy regardless of their circumstances? No. Pride destroys joy. If things aren't going your way, what do you say? I deserve better. Or this isn't fair. Or how could God let this happen to me? No joy. At the same time, what happens though when things are going your way? About time. Finally, someone notices my hard work. Took long enough. Pride kills joy. Pride says, by my power and for my glory, I am the tree planted in the middle of the earth. I am the center of the world. And unless everyone else agrees with me, I can't have joy. Pride turns you into an animal. It destroys us. God literally turned Nebuchadnezzar into an animal to show him what his pride had already turned his heart into. But why did he do this? Well, when you're studying a passage of Scripture, you often look for what we'll call the interpretive key. It's a tool that, where the text gives you clues so that you can actually interpret it the way it intended to be interpreted. And the interpretive key in this story is actually pretty obvious. It's back in verse 17. What did it say? It says, this is so. Why was God going to do this? Here's the interpretive key. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. God sent this plague to open Nebuchadnezzar's eyes to the reality that the cancer of pride was deep in his heart. And as terrible of an experience as this was, this was actually the gracious pursuit of God in his life. God cut him down, but didn't destroy him. And had he not, his pride would have killed him. So what happened? Nebuchadnezzar responds in humility. Look at verse 34. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens because all his works are true and all his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. He acknowledges God and that everything he has and is is from him. And at this moment, it's unlike any of the other moments we've seen in the book of Daniel so far. 
right? Multiple times, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced the power of God, but he'll say things like, everyone should worship Daniel's God, or everybody should worship their God, or they'll be torn from limb to limb. It's like, okay, I don't know if he's got it now, but here he has it, right? He is acknowledging the most high God is ruler over everything. He is the king of heaven, God graciously restores Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. And after it all, Nebuchadnezzar can write this story in a letter to the world and say, I thought I was the tree in the middle of the earth, but I learned that God is the king of heaven, that he is able to humble those who walk in pride, that this story actually turned out to be the greatest thing that could have happened to him. Pride is deceptive, it's destructive, but here is an incredible story of restoration. So, how can we experience the freedom from pride that Nebuchadnezzar did? How can we be restored from pride? What hope is there for us? Well, I want to walk through three antidotes. Three antidotes that I think directly attack pride in our life and actually help us walk in freedom from it. Here's the first one, forgiveness. Very practically, forgiveness. When we fail to forgive, what are we saying? We're saying, I would never do something like that. I could never respond that way. Jerry Bridges says, there is no sin I'm incapable of given the right set of circumstances. That's true humility. To acknowledge that, man, the only thing restraining me from sin is the grace of God in my life. And the sin that I've committed against God, it is so great, and yet he has so graciously forgiven me. How could I ever not turn around and forgive someone else? Forgiveness is a direct antidote against pride in our lives. Here's a second one, vulnerability. If you want to be free from pride, another direct antidote is vulnerability. Admitting you are weak. Admitting that you are limited. You see, it's not only an expression of pride to not serve other people. It's also an expression of pride to not let others serve you. When we confess sin, when we admit failure, we are attacking pride in our life. But instead, what do we do so often? We posture and pretend. I'm not really that bad. I don't really need help. I'm not as bad as that person. We convince ourselves and we try to convince others that we don't need help, that we're not weak, that we're independent, that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Here's the third one. Generosity. What did Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar to do? He said, hey, before the 12 months happened, he said, hey, you should respond by caring for those who are needy around you. Look out for those who are oppressed. What is the easiest way to really demonstrate that you genuinely believe everything you have is from God? Generosity. If you really believe everything you have is from God, you will be so open-handed with what you have. Generosity is a direct way to kill pride in your life. It's one of the most tangible ways to say, this is not mine and it never was and I didn't do anything to get it. I've simply been made a steward of it. Those are three antidotes to kill pride. But there's one more antidote, and it's the antidote that fuels all the activity of those three. 
And it's the antidote that actually allowed God to extend grace to King Nebuchadnezzar. The man who thought he was the king of the world and who robbed glory from God, who committed cosmic plagiarism, how could God restore him? Well, the only way was if the true king of the world, the king of heaven, experienced the same humiliation that King Nebuchadnezzar experienced. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the king of the world, but he wasn't. So God disfigured him in order to show him grace. Jesus, on the other hand, was genuinely the greatest king of the world, the great king of heaven, but God disfigured him, not to show him grace, but us. Here's what Isaiah 52, 13 says. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. His form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told to them, and they will understand what they had not heard. At one point, Nebuchadnezzar looked at the gardens of Babylon And he said, by my vast power and for my glory. But that wasn't true, so God humbled him. Jesus is the only king that could look at the gardens of Eden and say truthfully, by my power and for my glory. And yet he was also humbled. He became a servant. He laid his greatness down. He was disfigured on the cross to the point that he didn't look like a man. He was beaten and broken so that he didn't resemble a human being. Why? So he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. How do you get this antidote of pride? Admit that you need to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. You think that you are the king of your world. You think that you are the tree planted in the middle. That the world centers around you. But when you look at Jesus, what happens? You shut your mouth. When you see the true king who created everything, but yet was disfigured beyond human likeness, all so that you could be sprinkled clean, the one who truly had greatness and glory, disfigured for you, it moves your heart to acknowledge everything I have, everything I am is because of him. I need to be sprinkled. It leads us to shut our mouths, to stop saying this world revolves around me. The reality is you are not the tree in the middle of the earth, yet God loves you so much that the true tree of heaven was cut down to save you. See the gracious pursuit of God and acknowledge him as Lord over everything. Let's pray. God, there is pride in all of our hearts. All of us, like Adam and Eve, have the daily temptation to make our world revolve around us, to see ourselves as the center of existence, to desire that we get credit for what we perceive we have done, and in doing that, rob you of glory. 
we harm others. We become like animals in so many ways. God, free us from pride. Open our eyes to its deceptiveness in our life. Startle us by its destructiveness. Help us to see that at one point, pride will kill us. And God, let us lift our eyes. Instead of being pointed down at others, let us lift them up to Jesus and see that he truly was the great king of heaven. God, that he did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant, that he humbled himself, that he humbled himself by even becoming obedient to the point of death. God, for us, for King Nebuchadnezzar, for all of us who look at what we think we've done and we say, by our vast power and by my hands for my glory. And yet, God, you didn't leave Jesus in the grave. It was in his humility and in his humiliation, in his disfigurement, that you rose him from the grave, that you exalted him over all, that you gave him the name above all names and seated him at your right hand. That at one point, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow, acknowledging that Jesus is the great King of heaven. God, let that be the posture of our hearts, marked by deep humility, knowing that there was no hope for us other than to be sprinkled by his blood. And let that cultivate in us a joy, a peace, a humility. Lord, you are great. We acknowledge your glory. We acknowledge your holiness. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.